Hello, welcome back to another podcast of It's Okay to Feel. This is your host, Craig. And once again, I am here, Steve. Uh, This week, we're going to do a little bit, something different that we haven't done yet. Um, It's going to be a multi-series topic, and the topic's going to be on self-care. We've had a couple significant times together in our lives that, um, you know, we've had some ups and downs and passing of uh, family members and, um, you know, relapses into uh, mental health and into sobriety. And with that came different events that we've shared and individually have that have a huge focus on self-care. And um, for me personally, I don't think I'd be sober today without the self-care routines I have. Self-care has been one of the main contributors to my sobriety and to my recovery. If I haven't hadn't taken the time to take care of myself over the past four years, I would be a different person. I think that is one of the biggest contributors to the fact that I'm sober. I couldn't, if you ask me one thing that really was the difference between this time and other times, it's the way I treat myself and the way I take care of myself these days. And I'm passionate about it. I think it's a huge thing. And so I think it'd be good for us to do a series on it. Um, And with that series comes a a story about me and Steve here. We went on the John Muir Trail a few years back. And one of the most significant memories I've had um, in my life, and I think you'd share that feeling. Absolutely. um, Absolutely. So I think it would be fun to go through the story of how we got into it and the events leading up to it and how the trail was and kind of the story of the John Muir Trail with me and me and Steve here. Um, but before that, we're going to spend this episode talking about self-care. I know you have had uh, experiences with it, not personally, but also in your family to family class. And you guys talk about the importance of it. So let's start off on that and the family to family class and how it ties in. And yeah. Great. And one of the things that I always note is that the majority of people who take family to family are moms. Uh, somehow, dads seem to be able to check out when these kind of things hits their family, that is, substance use or misuse or mental illness. And moms are there until the bitter end. And in the first class, I always, always, always count how many people are in the room. And then I count how many of the people in the room are men. And if more than 25% of the people in the room are men, it's a very unusual group. But as I said earlier, moms are there until the bitter end. And one of the thing, and in those first classes, when moms come into the room, of course, not knowing quite what to expect, you can just see the drawn lines on their faces because caring for somebody with substance use or loving somebody with substance use and oftentimes caring for them, whether we're talking about, as I've said already, mental illness or substance use, it's wearing, it takes a toll. And uh, it's usually moms, the moms on which the toll is taken. In chapter 10 of Family to Family, we talk, we spend the whole two and a half hours talking about self-care. And one of the points that I always make is that each of us has to kind of dig inside ourselves and find out what we can do to take care of ourselves. 
And there are as many different things we can do as there are people. Uh, I have a, a dear friend who also teaches family to family who likes to paint, likes to draw. And she's really, really good at it. But when that she's what? But when she is in the midst of one of the family crises that inevitably come along, she found that she stopped doing it. She kind of put it all away. Uh, and now, I don't know how often, but on a fairly frequent basis, she's taken time to paint and to draw again. Uh, for other people, it's swimming or exercise, or hiking, or reading, or just having a conversation with a friend. But in each of us, there's something that we can do that takes care of ourselves, that kind of calms the jitters, that kind of de-stresses us. And that's, that is the easiest part of the problem. That is, what do I do to take care of myself? Easiest question to answer. The harder question is actually doing it because it's fairly easy to know that exercise or art or conversation is the way you take care of yourself. It's much, much, much harder to actually do it and to put it into place. And so we're going to talk about some of the ways that Craig and I have uh, learned to take care of ourselves um, through some some I think extremely stressful situations so and, and it's interesting as we started thinking about this each of us kind of starts at a different place but as Craig is telling me where it started for him I'm sitting here nodding my head saying yeah I, I get that that had an impact on me too it's not where I would have gone but yeah I can see why it would have had that role you know in you your self-care um, and so every time we talk about it, it seems like we back up the place to start. So the place to start for me is that uh, it's been probably uh, nine years ago. I had, we had a grandson in New York City. He was in high school. I think he was a junior or a senior in high school, but he was completing a project that they'd invited families to attend. And so we went shopping for my wife for clothes because she was the one that was going to attend. And as we're shopping, you know, obviously at, at that age, mid-60s, you know what size you wear. And as we're moving around the store, we're realizing that everything was just a little bit too big. And um, then I can remember calling our daughter in New York saying, you know, if you have in mind traipsing all over New York City, uh, honey, my, my wife, we all called her honey, she can't do that anymore. You know, you need to, you know, you might walk for 30 minutes, but you're going to need to stop and rest. She's just not up for four hours on the sidewalks of New York City. So our daughter understood that and attended to that. And um, I was to pick her up at the Long Beach Airport, and I'm sure that most everyone on this uh, podcast knows that Long Beach Airport is not very big. And so I was there at the appointed time. No place to park a car. The parking places were all full. And so I'm making the loop around the airport looking for my wife. And finally, I called her and I said, babe, you're going to have to come out where I can see you because um, I can't park 
so I can't get out of the car. So, you, you know, you kind of have to present yourself. So on the next loop around the airport, I see her and she is sitting on her suitcase. Well, for anyone that knows my wife, you know, you, you don't sit on suitcases. She would never have done that. And I thought that's strange. So we get her into the car and I said, how are you feeling? She said, you know, I don't feel well at all. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, she's flown across the United States twice in the last four days, nonstop. She's exhausted. You know, she's in her mid sixties, late sixties at that time. She's exhausted. You're going to get in the car and she's going to start to calm down and she's going to feel better. So we're on the freeway north of Newport Beach. And I said, well, how are you feeling? She said, you know, I don't feel well at all. And so I said, well, do you want to go to Hogue or do you want to go to Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo? She said, no, I can, I can make it to Mission. So we got her to Mission and they immediately admitted her. And through a series of diagnostic tests that they did over the next couple of days, they found out she had cancer. And at that point, they they thought it was brain cancer. And um, I think the first time she was in the hospital for about seven to ten days a week at least. And then she was out for a while. And then she went back in for a while. And we couldn't see her getting any better at all. And we talked, she and I talked. And she said, you know, she said, I, I just, and at this time we knew that the disease was going to take her life. At least it was pretty clear that that's how serious it was. And I said to her, well, you know, let's, let's just go home then and spend the time at home. And she said, I, I really don't want to die in the house. And she said, I don't want the grandkids to have bad memories of the house because I've passed in the house and it has bad you know, they, they have bad feelings because of that. And we went and talked to her doctor. <coughs> Excuse me. And her doctor said to her, you know, it's not going to happen like that. He said, you're going to go to sleep and you're not going to wake up. <coughs> and so she felt like that would be fairly... Uh, it would be at least a calm way to go out. And um, when she passed, I think there were five or six of us in the bedroom. And it was about two o'clock in the morning. And um, my wife and my youngest, the youngest of the four kids, four grandkids that my wife and I raised, um, had this little thing she did with my wife every night before they went to sleep. And it was this kind of a little verse that they did back and forth to each other. And when I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning, I realized that Abby was saying that verse to Honey in, in, in the bed. And when she was finished, when Abby was finished, my wife was gone. And it was stressful on every single member of the family. And I, I don't know that you ever recover from grief, but I think as, as her, her departure gets further and further away, it, 
the grief takes on different stages, but that is extremely stressful. And the question then is, so how do you deal with that? What, what do you do? Um, and did you, let's, let's start with, did you know, <clears throat> I mean, of course you were part of NAMI and you were doing the classes and just a, a disclaimer for you guys, Honey was my grandma too. Steve's my grandfather, so it's it was a family event for sure. But um, did you know before all this happened about self care or the importance of self care? Well, I didn't know it in the way I know it now. Let's put it that way. Right. I I knew about it intellectually because I'd been teaching the class. Um, but I kind of never thought about it in terms of myself. Because honestly, <clears throat> when you have a husband and wife who are both working on mental health situations for their children and grandchildren or mental illnesses for their children and grandchildren, um, it's much easier because you have a part partner that you're sharing the load with. And when you're alone with it, it's more difficult. And with the passing of my wife, uh, then I became one of those people that were dealing with it alone so did was there a, a significant time for you when you realized you know maybe i'm in too much in grief or i'm not feeling as happy as i want to that i need to <clears throat> change the, the thing that the thing that struck me and the analogy that i always use it's like being in the surf and having waves hit you and some of them are fairly uh, innocuous, you know, just kind of a gentle glide. And some of them just turn you upside down and spin you around like you're in the middle of a washing machine and you're helpless to do anything. And that's the way the grief struck me. There were times when, uh, yeah, you know, I really miss her. It's my life is different and all of those kind of things. And other times when it just completely turned me upside down and there was kind of nothing that I could do to shake it. So, so then when was the turn to self-care? What was the first kind of steps? Was it little things at first? Was it big things at first? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing, you know, I had time that I'd never had before. Um, and I, I started thinking about, well, so now that you have this time and, uh, and an opportunity, what, what is it you're going to do? Uh, with that time. And uh, the first thing that I did, well, I continued to teach NAMI classes and all of those kinds of things, but the first thing I did was, and I'm not sure why I was there, but I was at REI, and uh, they had an outdoor wilderness class. And I thought, that sounds intriguing. And I, I want to say it was like 10 weeks but they had yeah the class yeah yeah the, the curriculum was different each uh, each evening of the week it was held at uh, I want to say Santiago uh, College yeah. College yes and they would have a night one night one class on hiking shoes and they'd have another class on sleeping bags and another class on tents and then there were four times when we went on long hikes and. Uh, Two of the times we we were overnight, a night or two overnight, um, and I'm not sure exactly why that intrigued me, but that's something that I had never done really. Uh, you know, as a Boy Scout, I did it, but that was a hundred years ago. Um, 
So I, I signed up to take that class, and I think that was the beginning of really kind of finding other things to occupy my time so I wouldn't dwell on the loss of my wife. And how long was that after? Two years? Three years? I would say two. Yeah. About two years. And did you feel like there was anything smaller in between that that kind of gave you relief? or? Besides, yeah, yeah. I, I had started walking from the house. Uh, you know, the 10,000 steps a day thing. And we had dogs, so there was plenty of dogs to walk. And uh, But I just walked in the neighborhood that I lived in. Um, and for those of you that have done it, 10,000 steps takes about an hour and 40 minutes of hiking every day. And uh, I got to the point that many weeks I was over 10,000 a day, but not all weeks. Uh, there were it, Because it takes a chunk of time. And was it hard, because it did take some time, was it a hard transition? Were there days when you just felt like not doing anything? You <clears throat> just felt like sitting in it and, you know, instead of changing it? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, there were absolutely, there were days that I just couldn't get myself to to do it. I always yeah. felt better when I had done it. Of course. But the first step is always the hardest step. Which, for me, with... Uh, you know, a depression and diag or a depression and anxiety diagnosis, and of course, my past with substance abuse. That right there is a normal state of mind for me. I know I don't feel good, but am I willing enough today to make a change to make myself feel better? Because now I'm seasoned in self care. I know exactly what to do to make myself feel better, and that step for me is maybe one of the hardest steps some days is am I willing to actually go out and do something for myself to make myself feel better? And it's not like that took a day to figure out. You know, that took years to, to you know, master the point where I could do something that'll change the way I feel self-care-wise. Um, but for me, self-care started a long time ago, not on anything that I was doing just the fact that I was in and out of treatment facilities all the time and in and out of therapy and it was a, a thing that they harped on all the time I don't think it clicked the importance for me until this last time uh, I was in treatment and got sober you know I've always uh, talking to people that are newly sober today right one of the things that always triggers me is that right when they get 30 days all of a sudden they want to get a job right away. They want to get a career right away. They want to start making money. They want to get the car. They want to get the house. Everything has to be so fast. And I always felt that way too in the past. When I'd get into a treatment facility, I'd get 30 days. And now all of a sudden I need to be this person that I had all wrapped up in my head. Instead of the way I did it three years ago is I took time to heal. You know, I took about a year to get a job at Lowe's where I didn't have to do anything but show up. I didn't even need to focus when I was there. You know, they just needed a warm body there, and that's all I could offer at the time. And um, I lived at home, so I didn't have to worry about rent, which wasn't the easiest, but I made boundaries around it to make it so it was a safe place for me to, you know, lay my head every night, and I wouldn't have to... So I took out as many obstacles as I could so I could took that, take that first year to focus on 
how am I going to heal and how am I going to take care of myself? Um, and in the beginning that was going to church, that was hanging out with other guys that were sober, that was, um, you know, I'm still taking baths every, every couple times a week. Um, baths are huge for my self care because they quiet my mind. They put me in a, I've been doing it for so long that it's like meditation, right? When I start the bath, right? When I start the water going, my mind will instantly slow down and get into a place where I can kind of settle and either think about stuff or not think about stuff if I don't want to. Um, I started going to the spa and doing massages and facials and I started doing a skincare line and brushing my teeth every day and all these little things, they seem insignificant to normal people, but for me, these are huge steps in for me taking care of myself which were leading into me loving myself enough to give myself a chance to be sober. Um, so that's kind of my daily thing. But going back to the to the hike, going back to when Honey passed away, which was huge, and I didn't deal with it well. I went straight back to doing drugs the instant, maybe three weeks after she passed. Not that long. I think it was that night. Yeah. No, it was... It was Melissa, when Melissa passed is when I went right away while she was oh, in the hospital. Oh, you're, right. you're right. You know, and these are the ways that I dealt with stuff. That was how I dealt with trauma or grief or, um, you know, if I didn't feel like I liked the day, how the day was going, you know, I resorted to drugs. Um, and so when Honey passed away, I relapsed. I went to treatment. I went up to, uh, that's when I went up to West Covina to a sober living, right? I think so. I went to a sober living for about six months, kind of got my feet on the ground like I, like I was always good at. And then I came back home. And at that time, uh, you had, uh, started the class. REI. You started the class at REI. You started hiking. I didn't have too much interest into it, but I, what I would, what I was getting into at the time was Herbalife. And I was at a, uh, gym, uh, working as a personal trainer. And so fitness obviously was a big part of my life. And at this time I was sober. So that's what I was focused on. I was focused on fitness, you know, cause I would always obsess over one thing. It seemed like right when I got sober and that's what I was going to be for the rest of my life. So I was going to be a gym owner and a personal trainer and I was going to be the best at it. Um, and you happened to go on a hike up in Saddleback and injured your knee. And at this time, all the ladies, all the women of the house came to me and said, you better start taking this class with him or else he can't do it because they didn't want you out there alone. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard this. And so this was kind of the start of our hiking together journey, which lasted, gosh, um, three years, pretty much. On and off, three years? Well, the door is still open, but yeah, Craig, yeah, yeah. Craig doesn't get as much out of the hiking as I do. Um, and so we're going to go over the next maybe episode or two. We're going to get into that journey of us hiking together because not only individually was it important, but I think it was important for our relationship, um, you know, as a father and son type relationship. So a lot of significant Sure. changes it came about it just because we started doing this self-care routine and this healing routine together um 
so yeah we're gonna try to go a little more in depth over the next couple episodes we're gonna share some funny stories and also share some stories leading up to how we got into it and not only will it help with self-care hopefully maybe if you're looking into hiking and doing the John Muir Trail we'll give you some insights on how it went for us and yeah it was great it was great and I think that's the the biggest value as the relationship that I have with Craig as a result of all of those things and uh I would trade away the hiking in a in a heartbeat for the relationship that I have. Nice to have both, but if I could only have one, I'd take the relationship. So I think that's going to wrap up this uh, this episode. Um, I encourage you all to please start thinking about self-care, thinking about little things that make you happy. It doesn't need to be huge. It doesn't need to be life-changing. And, um, you know... As you'll see in the upcoming episodes, we didn't just all of a sudden go hike the mountain right away. We took little steps and we built up to the to the end result. And it's the same with self-care. You can't just jump into it because you'll fail right away. You need to start off small. You need to start thinking about what makes me happy. Maybe trying a couple different things. It might take a little while to figure out those things. But once you do, once you find that thing that when you're having a bad day, you can turn to. And 100% of the time, you're going to be feeling better. I mean, it makes a world of difference. And you can start feeling that self-love again. You can start feeling that ease and that you can start feeling more comfort in your daily life because you know you have stuff there that's that's going to take care of you. So welcome to the journey. Welcome to the journey. All right. Well, I think that's going to close us out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.